0: Okay, good morning everybody. It has been way too long since we've learned and it is great to be back. So um, first I want to say thank um, the sponsors this morning. I'd like to say thank Stephen and Marjorie Kellner who are sponsoring the Nishmas, Moishe Ben Yehuda Leib, Steve's father. As your side is this evening and the schus of the continued learning, not just our learning but your learning um, con- uh, continues Should be a schus for his Nishama. I also want to thank um, um, Paula and Wash Wansin who are sponsoring that's um, Paula's father, whose yard will be this, thurs- this Thursday. It should be a limud. The limut should be an illui for his and the time, for the entire mishpacha. Let us begin. I'd like to just take you back to seventh grade when what happened was we had a very enthusiastic Hebrew teacher who decided that they wanted to teach us the class for the national anthem of Israel. And so, of course, the school, being very careful about liabilities, asked the parent's body, are you comfortable with your children learning Tikva And half the parents said yes, and half the parents said no. And um, I never really fully understood, I never really fully understood the deliberation on either side of that. And um, I guess to, today what I'd like to do is a little bit of exploration, a number of years later, to try to address that seventh grader and try to understand why it was that some people were so vehemently opposed, and some people were so, so much in favor. Actually, I'd like to stop this point just to stop to wish a mazel Tov to Saul and Debbie, on the first granddaughter, Ariella Luna. Welcome back. Baruch um, wonderful, wonderful simchas. So I want to, I want to really turn to, to, I guess, my 7th grade self and try to give a little bit of an explanation. Because I doubt that the parents um, in the grade had a full perspective of why they were saying yes or no themselves. And I'd like to try to address some of those issues, but because of that, uh, we're in a shir, so we're not just talking about history. History is wonderful. There's a lot of fascinating history which surrounds that tikva. But I'd like to actually do a little bit of Torah as well. I'd like to get a sense of the Torah perspective on it historically, but there's some incredible Torah that's to be found in it and as a foil to it. And that's what I want to get to at the end. Okay, that's really the, the meat of where we're going. But let's start, let's start with the brief history itself because this is a really fascinating topic all in all, so let's let's start at the beginning. So as you can see, just to get a sense of where we're going. Visually, we're gonna start with the background history. And we're gonna talk about the tune and the adjustment in text. So that's gonna be the first area, area in the background. Then we're gonna move into the next section, which is controversy, or con- how do you say it in American? Controversy. Controversy, controversy. good. It's Miller Ra, right, it's Mila- <laughs> there you go. Um, and uh, and questionable so- uh, the questionable sources of the missing religious content, we're gonna deal with that uh, over there. And then we're going to get to the real Torah, which is needing hope and freedom from freedom too, which is the real Torah, which is behind, behind tikva itself. So as we move towards your mouth, well, let's get a sense of appreciation of where we are where we're going. We're going to get back to that word, hopefully. We'll try again a little later. So let's that's, start that's at the very beginning. I'd like to actually just start with um, just the text itself. Let's, get, let's, try to get, let's try to get into the text, to see if it works this way. Ah, One second. See. Okay. Okay. Let's see if we do it this way. Okay, it's not going in, but that's, that I wanted to actually see the text itself. Let's see if it works this way. Okay, and I click off your mouse, so you have the founding mouse. There we go. Okay, so let's just take a look at Hatikva. So actually, Hatikva itself is very short, very simple. Just to, for those of us who are not familiar with it, and those are, even who are familiar habitually, the, the, it goes. There's two stanzas. So, as um, as long as the deep in the heart, the soul of the Jew yearns, and forward to the east to Zion, uh, looks. Of course, we're speaking from a European perspective over here, eastwards, um, which works with American perspective too. Not South African. Um, our hearts, we, we don't have any Mizrach sons. There was a lady who, came, who, who got married to a South African, she used to have a son, Mizrach. I couldn't work it out. We all talk about Safon. I like, <laughs> son, of Mizrach, in our house. Anyways, we did not lose our hope. This hope was uh, the daughter of 2,000 years, to be a free nation. In our land, Eretz Yerushalayim, the land of Zion and Jerusalem, and that's what a uh, is. And we know the tune; we're very familiar with the, this um, the But uh, to really to get a full perspective on this, it actually starts a little earlier. Tikva was not a Tikva at the beginning. So let's let's try to move our, <coughs> our way backwards. The, in the background and history of it itself, there's actually a few different stages. So for so for instance. Um, where does it start? So the, the character, the colorful character we need to start with is a person by the name of Natalie Hertz Imber. Natali Hertz Imber was an uh, individual born in the 1850s, and um, he lived a very colorful life. He was a poet, a, uh, um, really, really a man of much expression and feeling, and he uh, moved to the land of Israel. He, worked, he served as a secretary to Sir Lawrence Oliphant, who was an eccentric um, British religious Christian Zionist. He was very. He lived in northern Palestine at the time, and he was very involved in trying to, uh, to, to encourage financially um, Jews to move to the land of Israel. Very uh, proto, proto-Zionist Christian. Very interesting uh, um, individual. And as his secretary, Natalie um, hertz um, was um, started producing or editing a journal called the Barakai, which literally means the, the Rising Dawn. And in it, he produced a poem, which was called. Anybody familiar? Anybody familiar what the poem? What the poem was? The poem is called Tikva Okay, This is the poem called Tikva It's a nine stanza poem which he released. No tune, just mind you, this is a poem. And, and as you can see, starting on the right over here, tikvatenu, hanoshana, David and you can see, and then the call because this is where Hatikva was switched from. And there's a whole long nine stanzas over here. And um, through which, notice that all the stanzas begin with the word kol odds." Like, so, for a long, long, long time we've been waiting for this. And these are all the things we've been waiting for. for our eyes have been, uh, have been weeping tears. We've, uh, we, we've been thinking about the walls of the destruction of our, our Migdash. Notice, by the way, the religious asp, uh, connotations over here. We're, we've been waiting now over here for the, to go to the Jordan River and the, to be in the, the, um, on the banks of the Galilee. So we've been waiting for the, the gate mark the gates to return to the Chorvot Yerushalayim to Batzion. all this time we've been uh, we've been waiting for uh, to, to wait Bashmorat Yakumba That's 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 Tikon Khatzot um perspectives over here. Call om Yehudi, poem and this this national feeling, the love of the nation which is which is beating in our hearts. Um, that today, the God who is angry will give rachamim to us. It's fascinating because this is the only mention of God in the whole of Tikvateinu. Is the angry God based on Telem? This is actually Kel uh, that the Hashem is angry at a certain moment every day. And the reference to God is the God who is angry. Isn't fascinating? Because obviously, as a as a Godless Jew, that was what he was experiencing. And he says that Hashem maybe will turn around shimu ba'artzot nudi es <laughs> kol achat chozeinu ki rak imaachrona because only with the last year is the last of our hope a very powerful uh, poem and this became very popular. Tegfateinu became one of the p- poems which became almost an anthem to the Chibat movement. Now remember in the Zionist movement there were many different um, there were many different flows. There was the religious Zionist, there was Chibat there was the social Zionist there were many different strata of, of, of Zionism, and Chibat really um, sort of adopted this particular, this particular poem. As you can see later on, what ended up happening was the first two stanzas flipped and became what we know as for itself, which started being sung, it, was, it became so very popular in the, in the Zionist congresses as they developed in the 1890s later on. So this, this was really the beginning of it, it's interesting that the two stanzas which were chosen of course are absent of, the, of Hashem, right? Um, there's there's no mention of Hashem that there is in Tikva itself. Let's move a little. F- let's move a little further back over here. It's interesting that as it developed out uh, Tikva itself, here's actually a manuscript of actually in the handwriting of Natalie It's hard to see. You'll notice that the old that we'll see that we'll see get, get a little later that the last stanza is a little different to what we have it today. It was changed. The David Chana is the end where David used to sojourn. That's where we want to return, and that's what that's what it. So, uh, it, um, it originally was, and there are differences in texts, which we'll see in just a moment. So this is how it started off. Himself, Naftali Herzegov, was um, a very colorful individual. He traveled the world after living in the, in the, in the 1880s in, in Israel, and he spent some time in Switzerland and some time in London. He ended up actually in New York, and he married, a, he married for a year in Chicago. Some people, some people say that there was murmurings of whether he became an apostate as a Christian. Interestingly enough, we don't know. Um, some of the encyclopedias reference such. Um, but uh, Beatrice May he died in 1909 here in New York, and um, unfortunately, as it was at the time, I think the money that was set aside for him, he didn't have family here, and the money that was set aside for him in the burial, there wasn't money for the burial, they couldn't bring him. So in fact, he ended up being buried in Queens for a number of years till 1953, and was reinterred in the land of Israel. Um, he died actually of alcoholism. So unfortunately, he was like you know, as many free and um, free spirits and creative people, they, they sometimes have a hard time um, in in the world around them, and uh, he was a very interesting person, but a very colorful individual himself, Natalie Hertz, a member who's now reinterred. in Israel. For those of you interested in, in very famous Israelis who are buried, who are buried in America, uh, if, if the next time you go to, I believe it's New Montefiore, it's, there's three cemeteries right next to each other off the southern, southern state, you can find where Je- Zev Jabotinsky was buried. Okay, He was reinterred. You he, remember he was, he was exiled to America, um, but you can see the place where he used to be buried. Um, here, out here, I think I think it's a new frontier. So next time you're around, I'm um, just fascinating as in terms of Jewish history. So this is this is not in but so a very interesting, very interesting um, um, history. And it became unanimously adopted in the Zionist Congresses and became really the, the theme of um, of of really of um, of the Zionist movement. It's fascinating. That do you know what year it was adopted as the national national anthem of Israel? When was it officially adopted as the national anthem of Israel? Two thousand and four. Okay, so it was only officially, um, uh, only officially, for whatever reason, it waited, and of course it was, you know, bi, you know it, socially, of course it was, but, but actually, officially and legally it only became in 2004, but that doesn't make much of difference. What, what I find fascinating is just a few interesting uh, notes of here in terms of the tune. So, um, this, this to me was very fascinating. The tune, of course, is not Natalie Hertz embers. The tune is, um, is actually, uh, there's a lot of interesting background to this. So, there was a 16th century uh, French i oh, um, listen to this just for a second and see see what you think about this. This is a song called Fuji, Fuji, Fuji. Oh, one second, let's see if we can get into French. it. French. Um, sorry, I apologize. <laughs> yeah. uh, one second, Here, let's get in. Oh, please say it's going to work. It would be so nice to hear to hear how beautiful this is. Um, it looks like we may have an issue of connecting. Is it on YouTube? We can all put it on our phones together. <laughs> uh, this, is, this is YouTube, but for some reason it's not connecting. Okay, let me just try one. Um, okay. Anyways, so it will be it will be interesting to actually see how um how the tune it, it was an it was a tune which actually gave rise to many. Let's see if we can do this one. Uh, what a pity. Okay, it would be so interesting to hear because what happened was is there was an original tune which was um which was used in the 16th century which gave rise to a number of we'll were called smaller tunes, and then even in the 1800s. Um, there was a, a Czechoslovakian or Romanian, some people say Moldavian. Oh, there we go. Rabbi, <laughs> <laughs> you can go onto the wireless now. We can, I have the wireless. This is the French one. Oh sorry, the, the Italian one. Oh, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. There we go. So this is the original French one. You can hear that the high part is a little different. Now. If you want to check the next part, so this, this one's actually more fascinating is you go to the Romanian folk note melody. It's called Carton and Oxen. It was about something very profound about the countryside, um, and um, and it is almost identical. In fact, what ended up happening was you able to. It's, it's called Carton Oxen Romanian folk song. Um, it's um, I, I, this is not the, most people just reference this, but to actually hear it, you get a sense of what was going on. Yes, you can find it, yeah, we have, yeah, we call it auxiliary audio. Um, um, in the meantime, while while we while we wait just to get a get a sense of this, when we go when we go into uh, what happened was is that in the late 1800s, a person by the name of Samuel Cohen. I'm sorry, no, this For some reason, this this, this a new type age. of slideshow is not working so well. Are you, we go. Yes. Um, so he, there was an individual court in the 1800s who was uh, Samuel Cohen, and. Um, he is famed for attributing the Moldavian or the Romanian folk song in 1887 to Tikvatenu. And, and it turned out, do you have it? You have it? Uh, not fine. Okay, that's fine. It's, uh, it's some sort of Romanian word, kuku shena or something like I mean, that. Right, I need a little and, more, um, and, and, more info on that. And um, so. um, it was such that's a so pity so because it would be, it's, it's, it's a very fascinating. That's you can so hear the real, it's, um, the, it's an upbeat type of melody here, attributed. Many people argued whether he was the one, somebody else did it. In the end of the day, this is going to be an interesting La in just a few minutes time, the attribution of the tune it was certainly not a Jewish tune, but it became accepted and a very haunting tune to us um, throughout. Now, we go into the adjustments of text. It happens to be that one of the highest, the biggest competitors to the Hatikva in the Zionist Congress was actually Tehillim Kuf Chavavav. It's inter- interesting enough. So these, these used to be the two competing melodies one, or, or, or poems. One was Shira Malos Hashem Very much a, a story about dreaming, about the future, about Hashem's return to the land of Israel. Interesting. Unfortunately, in the end of the day, um, did not actually succeed in, uh, in, uh, in, in succeeding. But nonetheless, it was it was one of the, the competitors, even to, through a number of the later Zionist Congresses. As we have it today, it's a little bit changed. The original, as Imber had, it was, we did not lose our hope yet. The old hope, the ancient hope, to return to the land where David encamped. Yeah, I mean, that's based on the Apostle in Actually, it was revised by Dr. Matmon Cohen to what we have today. That is no longer, do you notice, know, it's actually it's more secular as we have it today. It's liot <laughs> am chavshib arzenu eretz to be a free nation in the land of Zion and Jerusalem, as opposed to returning to the place of the ancients, right? Which is what Imber had himself. So that it has adapted itself. When you hear, when you hear renditions of it in the early 1900s, you'll hear different people. You know, if you hear, the, uh, the, you know, you'll you'll hear different people arguing. Mm-hmm. As to what, what the actual text is, until actually developed into what it is today. Is so yeah, we have yeah we have yeah we, we have the tune, very very fascinating, very fascinating So Let's return now to um, to what is actually going on with it. So there's a lot of controversy, or uh, controversy um, surrounding um, surrounding Hat text. Let's let's try to get into it. So one, there's there's two there's, there's really two gr- um, lines of thought in the opposition camp. In the opposition camp is um, is really the questionable source. Is, is the source a source that we want to be following? So the first is if you could just turn to uh, we actually have over here in, our, uh, in, our, in the notes over here, a lot of the things we've been dealing with, de- dealing with but that's not, that's not the tune. Um, <laughs> 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 uh, but thank you for, uh, for, 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 for driving. So well, I'd like to look into the writings of Rav Avram Weinfeld. Um, actually, Rabbi Isaac Rice has a beautiful shear on this, and he, the next two sources are um, are in here from his direction. We're going to get a little further than that, but this is a very fascinating way to start. Avraham Weinfeld was a was a one of the Gedolim who lived in Monsi after the war. After the war, and he uh, he has a he has a called the Leiv Avram. In Leiv Avram, Kuf Lamet Gimel, he is asked the following question: <laughs> Is there a prohibition on singing? So he says the following: Al Derech so whoever sending him the question was in a bass Midrash and they were benching. Before they were benching, they said, Shira malos, And they sang it to the tune of HaTikva. So the person who was asking, sending the question said, I put my foot down. And I refused to let them sing it. Was I correct in doing so? That's the question he had. I Meaning, he is not even asking about the words, he's asking just about the tune itself. And um, he goes on to say a very interesting thing. He describes in the, in the middle of this trivah, this is a very dis- interesting discussion in general, is do you say tunes absorb what they were used for? That's a question which is used, asked Lahalakha. And he talks about, he quotes a trivah's krach roimi, trivah's which emanate from the city of Rome. And um he says the following, he talks about how many Chazanim would go How you hold him a bit knesiyot anatsri meachareha pargot bimei chagom Li islamid lahem oyesha hakol hamaachnia hameshaber alev He would listen to the church, the Pidehahud, Chazanim would go to the back of the churches and listen to the church hymns and get a real sense of these beautiful tunes, these beautiful heart rendering tunes and he says, How you misadrin oyesha hakol es kadishim and he says, we know, historically speaking, that's what people did. Some of the most beautiful tunes we have come from outside of our, <coughs> our, our orbit. <coughs> so that's what that, he quotes the Tshuva's krach, <coughs> Rami. He says, so therefore, in our case, of course, you know, it comes from outside sources. Maybe, perhaps, we should be able to use it. However, he says, no, it's different here. <coughs> Even though there's much to discuss in what I just the response I just cited, <speaking in Hebrew> using tikva is not similar to those Chazanim going behind the churches and using their tunes. Why? <speaking in Hebrew> those are non-Jewish tunes. <speaking in Hebrew> he says, but they're not as bad as Atikva because Atikva is made to supplant a religious lifestyle, right? It's not, it's not okay, we're just singing about cart and oxen or whatever else it is, you know, or the drinks that we're having or freedom in Russia. It's about, over here, what we're talking about is, is a tune which is used to supplant religious expression. He says, I mean, He goes on to a very fascinating discussion. He takes it one step further. He says, Why is it so bad? Meaning, why would you say a Jewish tune is worse than a non Jewish tune? Listen to what he says. This is the beginning of his Shabbat. He says, in fact, that he believes that this movement, the Zionist movement as a whole, is worse than the reform movement. Why? He says, Despite the fact that the, r- the Reform deny most of our belief system, and in believe that the Torah could have been exchanged in part, could have could have been exchanged in part. <coughs> They, they, they understand that there is a movement who believes in what our identity is, and it's through the Torah. However, this movement over here, you're talking about the, the, um, the Zionist movement, he essentially <coughs> supplant what our identity is as a Jewish nation or a Torah nation with a nation whose main core is nationalistic, and as a detail happens to maybe have religion in it. So he believes that th- this is why he goes to such lengths. And this, by the way, is not just him, this, this is the, the perspective of many, many, uh, m- many in the other camp that the, the notion of what t- Tikva represents is a Jewish culture devoid of what everything about Jewish culture is, which is Torah. Because all it is, is a national shell of an identity which is lacking anything in between. And so far he goes to say that, therefore we wouldn't be able to use the Negro. Now it happens to be, halakhically it's not so simple because, as we just saw, happens to be that the tune of is not a. It wasn't invented by Imber in the first place, right? It was a nice good old, a good old Moldavian nigun about um, cart and oxen. So it should be anything, it should be at the very least like those church songs which were sometimes adopted. So in terms of the tune, there's no halachic grounds necessarily for that. In fact, when I used to be in Yeshiva's karen B'Avne, the first time I really experienced what it meant to have a true experience of what Yom Ha'atzma'ut really meant in a religious and in a deeply meaningful fashion. And you get into a basement, there hundreds of boys, and before Marev, they sing Shir Hamalos, Kuf vav, to the tune of Hatikva. It's a deeply moving moment, right? So, so there's, a lo- there's a lot to be said for this. Nonetheless, this is one side, because the attack of this is not only that it's neutral, but that it's a negative. It has the background and the history that it has is something which actually permeates with negativity. On a more, we'll call it a more, uh, more uh, we'll call it, um, nuanced approach to this, Rav Cook himself was also not a fan of this. So Rav Cook in fact, in the Igrois, in his letters, again, Rav Kook, of course, with his incredible embrace to the secular Zionist movement and the love for every Jew, and the fact that this national Zionistic, um, secular Zionistic role played a very important part in Jewish history, as he describes in many of his writings, he still says, he himself explains, and he says this in his, in his letters in the fourth Chalik, <laughs> he says, um, he talks about the Achare Rish Rikshea Torah. The feelings of Torah. Any of the building that we would have done in this land would be empty, devoid, without Hashem helping us, skipping the land. It's not enough just to sing atikva, just to drink the Carmel wines. It's not enough simply to have the only, the outermost experience of Judaism or <coughs> nationalism. You need to have the core of Torah. This Rakuk Torah talking. Now, by the way, this is such a uniqueness. He's able to look at the, at the world and embrace. The beautiful Jewish expression of nationalism, but at the same time, he didn't throw the, the, we'll call it the central piece of what we stand for, out. He could be very mucked on it being a Torah state, but at the same time embracing those who weren't necessarily doing that. What a remarkable nuance. He, in, in fact, Rav Cook was, um, w- was not a fan of Atikvah, and so therefore he created his own national anthem, which is called Haimuna. And this is, the, this is Rav Cook's version of it, called HaEmuna, and says, Listen, listen, to the, listen to how beautiful it goes. You, when you see the way He does it, you get a sense of the parts He did not appreciate of our and how He supplanted them. Here He has It's actually in the notes we have in front of us. He says, ad chaya bilvavenu Forever have lived in our heart, what? Not our tikva, not hope, but? Ha'emunah <laughs> our, our belief, our trust <laughs> in Hashem. there is وَأَرَتْ خَدْشَيْنُ To return to our Holy Land returning to the original Imba text, where David who dwelt, which is possible in Yeshayahu. there we will live, what we're supposed to be living. Right? shama shama chayenu That's what we should be. The nation of multitudes there in the land of Israel. Shama there we will serve God. The mention of God, which was absent. In Atikvah. we write, yeah. We'll make the ascent to Jerusalem three times a year. We want a life of Torah, which was given from, from heaven. And our... our, our our uh, heritage is eternal, which is the heritage is not the land, but the Torah. And in fact, still till today, this is what they sing and there's a beautiful tune to it. You can find it online and listen to Haimuna. very, very beautiful, the movement from hope to Emuna. Now, by the way, I've heard people say that tikvah is not, hope is not, a, is not a Jewish concept. Not exactly. Um, if you read it in Tanakh, Tikvah does appear a number of times, um, the, the notion of Tikvah. Um, but it's different to Emunah. In fact, I was looking through, I just appeared through this morning. You know, one of the appearances of Tikva is in Yermiah, Yish- in one of the Torahs we read on Rosh Hashanah. And a very famous passage. Of, yes, tikvah there's a Tikva, there's a hope at the end of your days. And the nation will return to their, their places. What Rashi says, or the Mitzvah says in this case, what does Tikva mean? Yes, there's, there's, there's a place in which we can hope. It's almost like. It's almost like tikva is the way the tra- the the targum translated is savour. There's a place. There's there's a possibility of an end coming. Meaning to say, imuna is we know, we trust. Tikva is is almost like where there's nothing really left. There's, a, there's 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 place to maybe hope that maybe a lot beyond the horizon there could be something. Rakuk says that's not how we live life. Tikva is tikvah is an infrequent notion. We want to talk about the real. The real, the real Imuna, which is with us, Emuna <coughs> uh, did not gr- uh, did not gain the same traction as Hatikva and it remains today still a um, a part of uh, of uh, and, the, and associated yeshivas of Mir Nonetheless, I'd like to focus on two uh, two real, really beautiful aspects of um of this of this whole, of, of this whole enterprise, and that is needing hope. So here we go. This this is really the Torah content over here. So this is this is where we get into the into the beauty of what's going on over here. So a few weeks ago we read a Haftarah um, on the Shabbos, holiday Pesach one of the most haunting Haftorahs we read in the year which is Yechezkel Perik Lamazayim Yechezkel just to, to put into context was a later colleague of Yirmiyahu so i mean to say Yirmiyahu is living in Israel witnessing the destruction ensuing as he warned them it would come and they ignored him Yechezkel is one of the people who was exiled there were two stages of exile before the destruction of the temple, 18 years beforehand. The, um, Bavel came in and exiled the greatest of, the, of Jerusalem, 10,000 of the greatest to Bavel. And Yechezkel was among them. So Yeheskel was the Novi in Galos. He was the prophet in exile. And, he's, and he talks about, he begins how he's on the Nar Kvar on the river in, of Kvar. And there's a whole discussion, can you have prophecy in Chutzlaretz? Because Yeheskel was in Chutzlaretz, he was in Babylon. And he is witnessing, and he's talking about the same doom that Jeremiah is talking about, but he is talking from the other side of the river, essentially. And um, he witnesses, and he, as you go through Pactess, the destruction. He's flown in, miraculously, to witness the destruction of Jerusalem um, from on high, to return to tell it to the people of Babel. Very, very fascinating um, life that he lived. He lived a lot of demonstrative prophecies. I mean, you need to say a lot of the prophecies he did where he lived, and that he showed them... Through these symbols of what he was living, what was going on, in the later, more hopeful chapters of Yer- M- of Avicheskel, Yer- there are a number of prophecies, and the one that we're talking about in Parashat Lamizain is the the valley, uh, the valley of bones. A very short prophecy about Avicheskel's Yer- watching in the in the um, Bikadura as he watches these bones, which are lying in this valley, re re reassemble and uh, and grow sinews, grow muscles. And ultimately pulled together to the full structure and a and wind comes through and every stands up and sings <coughs> Shira to Hashem. It's a remar- remarkable description um, of Tchia Sameis which Yecheskel witnesses. And uh, fascinatingly <coughs> enough, the Gomorrah does talk about this. Chazal do describe this. And they ask two very tangential questions, seemingly. The Gomorrah the, the asks the following question in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Sanhedrin, Sadi Beis and Mebeis. And here is the question. Let's read this together. The Gomorrah's question isn't so much about you know, how exactly did that happen. That's not what the Gomorrah is interested in. The Gomorrah's question is <coughs> Who, pray tell, were these individuals? Meaning to say, we live in a, in a closed system. Right? Meaning to say, there's nobody who's just sort of, you know, there's no extra entity or matter which just suddenly slips into the system. So we need to know, we need to be able to identify who there's these people who had the schus of coming back to life in the end of the day. Where did they come from? The Gemara tenders a number of suggestions, I just bullet pointed them to make it easier to see. Omar um, Rav, Rav suggested, Bnei Ephraim, Shimonu These are the children of Ephraim based on a very um, subtle posuk in Debre It describes how in Egypt what happened was, is the Bnei Ephraim, the children of Ephraim believed that the end of days was nigh and they, uh, they had made a cheshbon based on the prophecy of the Brisbane ben Abbasarim, of when they should leave Egypt. They believed it had come. Nobody was doing anything so they said let's light a fire. They escaped Egypt and there's a discussion whether they were killed in gut by the Mitzrim or the, or the Plishtim as to they were killed as they entered the land of Israel. So they were lying dead and their bodies remained fallow there until the resurrection of Yechezkel. That's option number one. Option number two, Shmuel <coughs> Omar These are people who themselves were people of their lives who did not believe in Tchias HaMesem. Ha, gotcha, you right. Um, so they 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 had chiyas ha meisim. Rabbi Yirmiyah Amar, erev bnei Adam sheva al she ein bohim lach luchis shomitsa. These are people who lived a life devoid of any spiritual content. And then the Gemara goes, oh no, erev bnei Adam shechivu esahichel kuloshkotim. And Rama says whatever that means metaphorically that they cover the temple with with um, with um, a creepy crawlies or disgusting things. Um, and uh, and Rabbi Yochanan talks about uh, another option of icha. Uh, uh, the people who were who are, who are taken as a uh, um, captivity and they fought back and they were killed. A um, lot of very interesting suggestions. Now, there's the one common thread which runs through all these suggestions, which is very fascinating. If you go to the, 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 um, the Gur aria if you go to the, uh, the, the, sorry, I apologize, the Maral on the Skomorah, the Guru sashem on the Skomorah, the Maral explains that when you look at the B'nai Ephraim, what was the emotion that was coursing through their veins which caused them to go back? and to break through the border of Egypt to go to the land of Israel. Think about this for a second. I would have said that the emotion was a courageous, a courageous vision of hope, right? Meaning here you have people who, are, who know that they want to fight the end, and they're trying, trying to make the steps necessary to be able to return to Egypt. It says the it was exactly the opposite. These are people who had given up on any hope, and therefore they realized that we're either going to die here, or we're going to die fighting. So let's die fighting. These are people who had given up on any end, on any future. Similarly with the people who did not hear the people who don't have lachluchis Luchis We're talking about people over here who are devoid of any hope. And isn't it fascinating that they are resuscitated. They are the ones resuscitated. Who's the audience? Who's the audience of this, of this, of this whole business? So you may think, well, it's them themselves, right? In the end of the day, maybe these are the people that Hashem was proving to. Ah, you didn't believe there was an end. I'm going to show you that there, that there is a, a hereafter. However, it may, not, it may be even more profound than that. Let's take a look at, at, at the time that, that Yeheskel lived. Let's go back for a second to where, where Yeheskel lived. Yechezkel lived in an age, as we talked about, where he was in Babylon with pre-exiled people watching the new exiles coming in. Right? This is when he was living. They witnessed the destruction of the temple in the two stages. In Perich he, he, a, a certain co- uh, you know, group of elders approach him and they ask him a question which Yecheskel is so shocked by, is so perplexed by, that he says, It will never be what you suggest. And he's very, we don't know what, he, what, what the question they asked him was. But later on, as you get into the rest of Parak Chav, he lets out the bag what these people had suggested. He's, the following is, is how he responds. That which you believed, and will never be, that you say, We should be like the nations of the land to serve stick and stone. To serve serve, um, wood and stones. Now think about this for a second. What are they saying? What were the elders trying to say to Yecheh It's over. God liked us. It was a nice, we had a nice time when we were in the land of Israel, we clearly did not live up to expectations. And that was it. That was the end of the experiment. Look where we are now. Look who's coming in. There's no mikdash. There's destruction. All those prophecies, all of the Bible, all was talking about when it worked out. It hasn't worked out. We failed. That's it. End of the game. That's what they were saying. In fact, the Gomorrah uh, describes, what were they really Eved rabbi. When you have a master who kicks out their slave, a couple divorces, do they have any relationship anymore? Is there any reason for, for there to be any intimacy, for there to be any connection between the two of them anymore? And the answer is no. That's what they were saying. Yeheskel's audience were these people, were people who living in Babylon and thought this is the end of the day. So perhaps, perhaps maybe what happens is who is Yeheskel really talking to? Yechezkel is showing this vision and describing this vision to that same audience. To the people who say it's the end. And Yechezkel says, you know, I want to show you something. I want to show you people who also thought it was the end. I want to show you other people who also said, you know, there's no tchiasa HaSameisim. I want to show you people who believed in Egypt and thought that it was too long. This was the end of everything. And they went up and they died hopelessly. I want to show you people who lived a life devoid of all religiosity. And you know what? They can live still. There's still hope for them. Listen to what we say at the end of the Haftarah. The most profound Pasuk. The Pasuk says, V'yomere'lai ben Adam. Hashem says, Son of Man. That's the way Hashem addresses Yerich Yisrael These bones of all the bones of Israel. Hine'omrim. Those bones say, Senu, Our bones have withered. vosenu." Our hope has been lost. Nixerenu lanu. We've been cut off. What was, what was Naftali Herzimba doing? He was taking this same Pasuk and saying, la avda exactly quoting from this Pasuk, what was he doing? He was saying exactly that message. Don't ever say that it's too late. Don't ever say that it's beyond our hope to be able to come out. That's what Oila Avda Tzikvar is. There's a remarkable recording, and again, it's not going to work now for some reason on... The, um, and the Wi-Fi. There's a remarkable recording, a British, a British recording. In April 1945, when they liberate Bergen Belsen, and the prisoners get together, and they know they're being recorded, and they want the world to hear something. And they sing Hatikva. loy of tikva can you imagine? That's the valley of death. That's the valley of bones. of That's what he was saying over here. The the the, the message that Yecheskel was giving his audience the people living at his time. That is what, what, what was going on. Let's take it one step further. This over here is now even even more remarkable. From free, freedom to and freedom from, I'd like to just describe this, this, this really fascinating concept in, um, in the words of Rav Chaim Cohen. Rav Chaim Cohen is an individual who lives in Israel today. He's known as HaChelban, the milkman. He's a very simple Jew and um, a very, very fascinating Kabbalist as well. He's got a number of svarim which uh, we've learned together in some ways uh, before the, uh, the Talalay Chayim, and he has a section on Sira Omer with the following question. This is a question which I've thought about a number of times, but never really had the ability to articulate it as being strange. Here's has the deal. We're on <coughs> Pesach, we're getting home from Shul, the second out of Pesach, and um, did you ever find that it was a little bit incongruent as you, you as you're about to enter the second seder for us in Chutz Laaretz, and what are we doing? <coughs> we're counting the Omer. Right? Meaning, it's very, it's, it's very in, in your face as to how incongruent this is. In Israel, this is the second day of Pesach. But still, if you think about it, it's really strange. Here, Serious Omer is essentially a count up towards Shavuos, right? And here you are, we can't even enjoy Pesach before, we're starting to count the Omer about the next holiday. It's like, you know, it's like a couple getting married, you know, under the chuppah, they say, well, what color should we paint the baby's room? It's like, just, just enjoy the marriage, this is the chuppah, it's a wonderful time, just enjoy Enjoy life now. Why are we talking about the next? Why are, we, why, why are we talking about Shavuos? It's Pesach. Enjoy Pesach. Right? And you notice, interestingly, halachically speaking, it also follows the same pattern. You notice that, that the, already the halal shifts in the middle of Pesach. Pesach, we do the full halal for the first year in Chosar. It's two days, one day in Israel. And then it's half halal. And if you think about that, you know we know, the, we know that the, the classic interpretation is is that um, on the last day, the Egyptians were killed. And we don't sing Shira when Hashem, my, my creations are dying, we don't sing share about that. But that doesn't account for the other in-between days, right? That doesn't come for the five days in-between. It's very strange. It's almost like it follows the same pattern as the Sirah which is we're, we're about to like talk about Pesach, and then we sort of drop off and like we dilute it a little bit. It doesn't, it's no longer really a full like experience. It's very strange, right? Very uh, <coughs> odd experience. So right, the Talal the Lechaim is a very interesting thing. He says, look, there's Shavuos and Pesach represent very different ideas. Pesach, and this, the, the, perhaps these concepts are well known, but I think they need okay. um, revising. And also the way he says it is, is most remarkable. He says, look, Pesach is about the notion of the fact that we're free from. We, got, we were under the, the jurisdiction of another nation. <laughs> we, we, didn't, we didn't choose what time we got up in the morning. We didn't choose what breakfast we had. If we had any breakfast, we didn't choose our religious observance, We didn't have the freedom of worship. We were essentially under somebody else's thumb. Pesach is a celebration of the fact that we're free from someone else. We're free to do what we want. But Shavuos is not so much about a freedom from, it's about a freedom to. Meaning to say that in Shavuos, it, it could have been if all we had was a Pesach, we would have been a nomadic tribe, a Bedouin tribe in the Sinai Peninsula. And that would have been it. We would have been free to have coffee at any time of the day. That would have been it. In the end of the day, that's not enough. We needed to have a freedom to. We needed to have a guidelines as to what would make a difference how does this Bedouin tribe make a difference in the world and therefore there's a rule book? And the rule book is the guiding, guiding way to describe a guiding light as to how to express what that freedom is. That's why when, when, when let us take a look actually at the Sefer HaKinuch, the words of the Sefer Achinoch when describing this in the most beautiful way. Um, this is the, these are the words of the Sefer HaKinuch which he quotes, he says, when talking about Tzvir HaSalemi, he says, Mishar al Yisrael eno Our essence, our life is Torah. We made Hatorah Nivru Because of that, the world is created and we. I would never have placed the the, the rules of physics, I would never have established this space of existence if it weren't for the content of existence, which is Torah. The reason why we left, why we got freedom from, was in order to get freedom to. Says Moshe, "Namar at the burning bush says, "God, how do I know that this is you're sending me?" And What should I tell them, "What's Moshe Rabbenu respond?" Because you know how you know you know I'm, the, I'm, I'm 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 the God the power because when you leave here you're going to serve me. This is not just a free for all. This is not just exodus. This isn't just civil rights. This is going to be what you have a mission in this world to accomplish. And he goes on. This is more important than simply freedom from. The primary freedom that we have is the freedom to follow God's word, which is Shavuos. And therefore, there's there's almost a convergence. We start with Pesach, but as we start with Pesach, we say it's not enough. We don't want to stop there. It's not the full picture. It's not like a couple at the chuppah talking about the children's room color. He says, you know what it's like? It's a couple getting engaged and at the engagement saying, when's the wedding going to be? That makes sense because that's the next step. You don't have engagements without weddings. Well, hopefully, we should all be to have engagements that follow with weddings. But what he's saying is, is he's saying there's no Pesach without Shavuos. You can't have an engagement where you're free from without the destination of two. And he takes it one step further. By the way, just uh, psychologically he actually talks about this in a most profound way. If you live in a society where the ideal is freedom from, what is the greatest goal in society? Let's say that the only type of freedom that we have is a freedom from. What is the greatest goal in that society? How do you achieve the greatest amount of freedom? Nothing. What? Nothing. Not necessarily, no. Have choice. have choice. So that means to say that I therefore need to accumulate the greatest ability or vehicles of choice. And what are those the vehicles of choice in this world? Money and honor. Because ultimately when I have money, I can do whatever I want without anybody stopping me. And honor people listen to what I say without anybody stopping me. Meaning to say, if the totem pole is a Pesach expression of freedom, and that is the goal of life, then who what is, what is, the, what is who's the winner of that type of freedom? Is a person who accumulates the ability to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And that's the end of the game. If you think about that. Isn't that what society celebrates? Meaning, think about the, you know, all those advertising billboards as we drive to work and think about w- w- what, they <coughs> what they're espousing. Meaning, uh, you should be able to be free to do whatever you want. Go on a fishing trip with the kids in the middle of the, our busy season or whatever else it is. That picture that they want you to imagine that you could be because you need to be free because that's the ultimate goal of life is freedom. So he says, but freedom too is not. Freedom too is where you sublimate yourself to the fact that there's something greater going on. There's a greater rule book going on than just the ability to make choices. Whatever you want to do. That's, what they, that, that's the difference between them. Because if you think about what society treasures as what type of freedom. It's very important to, to, to consider this. Here he takes it onto a national level and this is, this is why it comes back to us. This is the most beautiful description. Here we go. Here's what he says about uh, Tatikvah. About I'm Kodosh or I'm Kavshi? What are we? He says the following. Barur but in the last generation, zakinu Hashem, um La the Eretz Israel, the We We have witnessed in the last generation miracles that our ancestors could never anticipate. Leaving Gaulus to go to the land of Israel. For the first time, we can make decisions, legal decisions, of what the rules of our country are going to be. As we were in the, in the, when we were in, in Golos. Uh, when we were under um, Christian or Muslim control, and they decided our fate. We live in Israel without anybody else saying what well, our law should be. Well, technically, um, you know, it depends who you ask. There's definitely a lot of pressure on the outside. Our situation is altogether different. You know, don't let the people say, well, we're still international pressure. International pressure is nothing like having pogroms in France without, uh, without uh, anybody standing up for us. So let's, let's not get that confused. However, he says, Many, like Imbus, raised the flag and said, That's it. We're now free. It is a huge thing. Is that the terminus? Is our greatest identity the fact that we're not slaves? Meaning, who are you? And is your answer, I'm not a slave, I can do what I want? Is that who you are? He says the answer is that Hatikva was the necessary first stage. It was the Pesach. It was the freedom from the nations. But that's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the goal. We're not defined by what we're not. We're defined by what we are. And what we are is based on the Torah. Based on what we're free to do. Is that a beautiful description? That's the problem over here. Meaning it's true. Let's not discredit Hatikva. Hatikvah is the beginning. It's the first step. But remember that in the first step of Pesach, we already start talking about Shavuos, which is the next step. And that's where we reinfuse the Torah into into our lifestyle. What a remarkable statement over here. What a remarkable way of looking at the Syrius Omer as a movement from Pesach to Shvos. And it, of course, makes sense why Yom Ha'atzimot is in that process. Also, interestingly enough, it's interesting why Yom Ha'Yerushalayim is later on in that process as you come closer to design to Yerushalayim, to the, to the place which emanates from Torah. I'd like to close with li- the following. And this is that, um, again, we're not able to see the video right now, but um, um, just this, this year at APAC, for those, for those who were who are able to, to be there, it was a mo- most remarkable moment. And um, there was a, the, the, what APAC does is between the political speakers, they have, you know, Israelis come in and talk about things they've been doing. And there's this interesting individual called Amnon Weinstein. Amnon Weinstein, And Amnon Weinstein is, a, is an expert in, in fixing violence. And what it, so he, it, he has an interesting story. His story is, is the following, is that his father, when his father was a survivor, and I believe he was from Warsaw, and when he came to Tel Aviv, he became the house uh, for all the survivors of war, sort to sort of you know gather and collect their facts and regroup, and what he found was that a number of people used to come to his his father's house, and a lot of, and and there were some of the people came and dropped off their violence. Where were the violence from? There were violence that they were forced to, to play in Auschwitz-Birkenau, as people were going to the gas chambers, they, and these people never wanted to touch these violence again, and they dropped off these these violence of death. At uh, at the this Warsaw house in Tel Aviv at his father's house, and as he grew older himself, Amnon he became involved in violent fixing, and he started collecting all these violins and trying to fix them. And he used to open them. He talked about how he opens them up, and he found ash inside the violins from the ashes that were flying through the air of of the gas chambers as he people played it. And he refurbished these violins and he reconstituted these violins to what he calls the violins of hope. They actually played a few years ago in a beautiful chamber in a synagogue in Europe. Um, they played these violins once again, and he goes around the world talking talk about the violins of hope, and at the end of this video in APAC, as APAC does so beautifully, it merges from him talking in the video to him on stage playing one of those violins. And it's the most remarkable video, video if you have a chance to watch it. He starts playing this violin. He plays a beautiful melody, and then he merges into Atikvah. And he starts playing on this violin, the violin which witnessed the deaths of tens of thousands. He started playing tikva. and spontaneously Everybody in the stadium of 19,000 people stood up, and in the background, you listen carefully, you hear 19,000 people singing Hatikva to the violin which played at death. And that, that, ladies and gentlemen, as far as we've gone and as many critiques as we have, we never lost even the outmost freedom. We should, Baruch Hashem, we've had the opportunity of witnessing. The blessing should be that, mehaz Hashem, we should watch the freedom too the ultimate of of job thank you so much